Hello, friends. <laughs> I wasn't sure if PL was going to take this one or not. Welcome to episode 15 of Page Chewing. PL and I always, always have that figured out before we go live, but this time we were slacking. Uh, so we are here today to, with some wonderful authors, two authors, and I wanted to hear about their stories and how they became such good friends, which is Anna Smith-Spark and Michael R. Fletcher. Uh, so thank you both for coming. If you, uh, just, Anna, if you can give us just a quick introduction, let us know about you and your work. Cool. So my name is Anna Smith-Spark. I'm the author of the Grimdark epic fantasy trilogy, The uh, Empires of Dust. So that is Good Broken Knives, Tower of Living and Dying, House of Sacrifice. And there is a reference to a different cover, a different colour of the outfits that Marath is wearing in those books. In each book, there is actually a reference to him wearing that colour cloak that's coordinated to the cover of each volume, which I was quite pleased of. And I'm actually sitting in my parents' spare room, hence the backdrop, because otherwise you'd be looking at my parents' accumulated spare room crap and no one wants to see that. <laughs> <laughs> but I've got a picture of a scene from an illustration from one of my books as a backdrop instead. Cool. Am I supposed to talk now? Sure. <laughs> Uh, hi, uh, I'm Michael R. Fletcher, author of the Manifest Delusions series, the Obsidian Path books, City of Sacrifice books, and some other random stuff, and happy to be here. Yeah, awesome. And PL, you want to tell us about you and your work? Um, PL Stewart, author of the John Kingdom saga, um, two books out, A John Kingdom and the Last of the Atalanteans, and working on book three, Warren King, and honored to be here with our esteemed guests and Steve, of course. <laughs> and, and Steve. And Steve. And, and Steve too. He's, he's okay. Yeah. He's all right. He's all right. So I was, I was curious. I uh, wanted to hear about how you two became such good friends. How did that come to be? <laughs> I'm not super sure. How did this happen? I just well, I started kind of, there was the, I think it was kind of through the, um, the group, there was a Grimdark group on Facebook and, when I joined it and my book had like, I just got an agent and my book was out of submission um, because of course broken. I was out of submission. And that was when beyond redemption had just been published. And Michael was like, just like, obviously everyone in that group was just obsessed with him. And it was like, Oh my God. So I need to like, clearly I, I want, I want to be like him. I want this level of like, <laughs> he's famous. It's like, turns out no, yes. it was only the people in that group, those six people, but yes. everyone else on the planet was who? But there was a really happy, there was like six months where me and you were like, we ruled that group. There was like, yeah. it, we were just, like, we could just, it was just amazing. We were like king and queen of that group and it was amazing. It was just <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and and um, yeah, we just kind of, a lot of people say of us that we're the two that go further in being truly epically grimdark than <laughs> anyone else alive. So yeah. Yeah, no, we just, just somehow, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it started with that, and then somehow, I have no idea how this came about. We ended up writing a uh, some serial fiction for Grimdark Magazine. We wrote it years ago, uh, and it will see release maybe later this year. I don't know what the plan is. I think it's editing is finished, but it's um, 10 chapters, 40,000 words sort of thing, novella length-ish, I think. Yeah, it's not, it's not that long, but we, um, so yeah, we, one of us wrote one chapter, I think, Fletcher wrote the first chapter, and then I wrote the second chapter, 
but we didn't really bother doing that much like we just like quickly read the chapter that the, the next chapter the previous the other one had written and then carried on and we didn't really do much the kind of like going back or planning so we didn't really bother right rereading the stuff we'd already written neither of us and we didn't really bother have we had no plan for where we were going so it kind of i like to describe it as organic but it was <laughs> experimental. Yeah. So it's now being edited, and God knows what the editor. I think the editor's going to be just putting their hands into head in their hands in complete despair at the level of just insanity that was. Going yeah, on. Well, it's funny. I've been talking with Sarah, uh, Sarah Torn, who's who's editing it, and uh, Sarah is like she's worked with me a pile of times, so she's used to my like my shitty writing and sort of chopping stuff up for me, <laughs> um, but. Uh, she's kind of in awe um, of Anna and she's kind of, she's kind of like, she's reading it and like going like, what do I do to this? Like how, because Anna doesn't write like, like I do. It's, it's not like a, like simple workman, like prose kind of it's, it's like, um, I don't know what to call it. It's like, there's like a poetry to it. There's a music to it. Like it's, it's, it's more than just the words. It's how everything sounds together. And anyway, um, I'm just super happy I'm not editing that because I remember Anna sent me something once ages ago to read and I was just kind of like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I can't do anything like that. Like, what do, you, what do you do? Like, I think that should be a comma there. I'm like, fuck, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, poor Sarah, she's terrified. <laughs> <laughs> So, so if I can ask, so Michael talked about Anna's prose, you know, it's, it's lyrical, it's poetic. Is that, so I want to ask both of you, what each of you likes most about the other's work? Like what aspect of the other's work that do you, do you like the most? Yeah. Uh, I mean, for me, like it's a combination, um, Anna's a, like a prose monster, um, and it's, it's viciously infectious. Like every time, if I read one of her books for like literally months afterwards, there's some part of my brain, like that's trying to like dissect that and write like that a little bit. And it creeps into my own style and I'm like, why, where the fuck did that come from? Um, and then I, uh, I love Anna's willingness to just like, fuck your expectations. Like, oh, you think this is going to end well? Like you think this is a this is gonna be this is a nice healthy love story? Fuck you. And I just I love that. Well, it's the same with Michael. It's like just the kind of I, mean, I just remember reading Beyond Redemption and just thinking, like, oh my god! I mean, this is just going so far. This is just you know, and the, his descript his descriptions are amazing. And his he says his work praises workman like, and it's really not. You know, he's just you can see it, you can really feel it, and you're going somewhere so far. You're being taken. I mean, that amazing scene with the woman in the mirrors, the broken mirrors, and you're just being you know you're taken to places that you just couldn't have imagined going to in this incredibly. It's totally convincing. It's not it's like nice, healthy, cozy fantasy. <laughs> well, the I mean, the ending of. Um, Swarm and Steel, which I always I do call in my head the all-consuming because I sometimes which is what it should have been called. Should have been but, called. Yeah. yeah. The I mean the ending of Swarm and Steel is just I mean it's just unbelievable. It's just I came away from that just like you bastard. Like how did you <laughs> <laughs> you actually did that? It's just absolutely bloody unbelievable. 
things he can do but make work and yeah just kind of going so far but making it work and again that kind of it's the sinister there is obviously again there's that sort of total cynicism of again you know yeah you think this is going to work out you think these people are going to suddenly like suddenly see the light and it's like oh, oh, oh i'm gonna become a nice settled down i'm gonna be a nice person and you think that's gonna work out for them but you do want them you really want them to work out i mean some of the relationships are just you know they're really convincing relationships these are two people and they're they're monstrous people but they're also just human beings and for all they've done they're you know they are kind of self-doubting critic self-criticizing you know things are fucking up around them and they're trying to make the best of it they're not evil they're not you know he's not writing about people who are evil he's right or some of them are evil but you know most of the people his, his main characters are people who are just you know they're in a fucking awful situation but they're kind of they're trying to get by and they're making mistakes and they're making more mistakes but that's how a lot of life is and they're but they're just real and they have they're like some of their relationships are so touching and you really want things to work out for some of them you really desperately want things to to work out and you really want you kind of feel anger at the world that's left them like that rather than they're really kind of yeah they're really it's really they're kind of uplifting in a strange way because it's like you know it isn't about blame it's about just people and what what the world does to people the lesson point. is if you if you just keep trying you can make it much worse than it is now <laughs> <laughs> uh, we did have a question for both of you uh which book did you most enjoy writing oh must be a tough one yeah so i mean actually i always talk about the difference between writing the big difference for me the was between writing so the cord broken eyes i've talked about this so many times i didn't intend to write a book even i didn't have any when i started writing that book i had no plan that i was writing a piece of fiction let alone that i was writing a kind of the first book the first volume in a grim dark epic fantasy trilogy and it just came out i just like what was what's now the second chapter i just started writing that scene i didn't know who any of these people were i was in a desert there were some people and dragon turned up you know anyone who any of these guys were or anything they were doing so everything that happens in that book God broke knives was a discovery to me as I was writing it. I didn't do any word building. There was no planning. I had no idea where anyone. I, I was just discovering it. It was like it, I was. It was all just happened. I was discovering it. It really was like I was traveling through that world with those people, and I was discovering them. So when no, it was really clear to me early on there was something really strange about Marith, but I didn't know. I was explore. I was finding out his secrets as we went along. Everything that happened in that book was not planned at all. And that was amazing. That was just so exciting because this book was just pouring out of me. This world was just appearing in my mind. And it was like, it was like the book already existed. It was like the book was just kind of coming from somewhere into my head and then out onto the keyboard. And it was incredible. It was like a revelation. But then, of course, by the time I came to write um, The House Sacrifice, which is the final volume in the trilogy, I knew what was going to happen. I knew where, how we ended. I knew all the characters. I knew the world. And I had, you know, it was, I knew where we had to go and everything was all set up. So it was, you know, it was all set up for, for that book. So I was just able to have the most amazing amount of fun, just mucking around with stuff, just kind of, I mean, I think there's a chapter that towards the end, that's something like someone just shouting like, yeah, 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 I kill. And that's the whole chapter. <laughs> and, 
and that just having that fun with just kind of but and I had so much confidence you know I've really got my confidence up as a writer so I was just really messing around with prose and with stuff and just mucking around and yeah and just having so much fun just like you know I'm I'm finishing a trilogy I'm I'm gonna finish this needs to finish in a really big big way so let's let's just really go big and let's just really just lose it completely and break the fourth wall and just completely break every single rule of writing and that was just so much so much fun <laughs> and yeah and then for a long time I couldn't write anything after that because it was just like god I'm just spent now I'm just like <laughs> and now finally I'm writing again so I guess the stuff I'm writing at the moment is nice because it's like okay life's a bit normal again now it's quite enjoy it's enjoyable writing again for the first time in a long time after everything Uh, for me, it'd be Blackstone Heart, uh, hands down, and by far was the most fun book. Uh, it was the first book I ever tried to write way back in the 90s. I kind of knew the story back then because it was it's all ripped from a Stormbringer campaign I, I ran as a, a teen and into my 20s. Um, and back in the 90s, I tried to write it and I couldn't because it was difficult. And back then, I didn't do difficult things. Uh, either things came very easy to me and I was like, sweet, this is the way things should be. Or if they were difficult, I just stopped and did something easier. Uh, writing was hard. Uh, where uh, this time I finally was like, okay, I'm actually ready to tell this story that I always wanted to tell the first story I ever wanted to tell. Um, and I, you know, first draft hundred thousand some odd words was like two and a half months pff, done uh, hand wrote it the first time. Uh, and that was a lot of fun, uh, transcribing it from my, uh, you know, pad to the computer was much less fun. Um, uh, my handwriting is awful. Like even I can't read it. I'm like, that's four hours in a row. Like the fuck it. What, what, what word is that? Um, so that was a pain in the ass, but, uh, I like, I love that story. I, I love the character, even though he's a complete dick. Um, yeah, so that that one was a lot of fun. That was for sure my favorite favorite book to write so far. And uh, Megan Destray did have a question for Anna. Will your new book be as grim as your first series? I loved it. Oh, gosh. Okay, so um, a big announcement. I've announced on social media a couple of weeks ago, and I'm really excited to be able to talk about it finally and make a big announcement. So, yeah, I've got a book coming out next year from a small press, and the fact it's small press might suggest something about content it's um it's called a woman of the sword um yeah michael's like michael's read it and really liked it yeah it was awesome it's so it's kind of it's like yeah it is really bleak grimdark kind of war it's about it's about it's about kind of a woman and a mother and a perfectly ordinary you know sort of perfectly ordinary working class just with a job trying to get through life with children woman who's caught up in basically in the kind of total and massive epic war at the end that the house of sacrifice ends with and that then continues after that so it's a kind of coda to the trilogy and it is really it's me going to some really really bad places about how angry i am and i was about i was i was kind of writing the second half of it during lockdown when Know, partic particularly for women it was you know if you had children it was almost always it was almost always the 
women who were taking responsibility for the children. I know actually Michael, it was Michael who was locked in his house with his with his daughter, not his his, his wife, which is she actually wonderful. has a real job though. So yes, <laughs> but for sense. a lot of us, the only Nick, you look at the statistics, women were the vast majority of people in kind of very vanilla heterosexual household one mum dad two children 2.4 children and the dog households it was the women who were doing all that had all the work homeschooling I mean I remember one day I was trying to teach two different I was trying to teach two different primary school maths lessons and do my own job in a lot you know locked in the house with the kind of like what if my parents die thing going in the back of my head and it's all of that in with total massive epic grimmed up battles and that kind of totally toxic misogynistic grim dark world that I built which is I mean gosh gee I can't imagine why a book like that was even remotely relevant I mean <laughs> just looking at the news today and yesterday I can't imagine why I might feel rage and anger and want to write about women in a toxically masculine society which is just crapping on us <laughs> daily basis but yeah so that is um yeah it's it's my intensely personal kind of stuff about my feelings about kind of of sheer absolute rage and despair, frankly, but with big battles of dragons. And that was, yeah. So that's coming out next year with a small press because um, it's just so not massively commercial fiction. But I am actually now trying to write some stuff that's slightly less grim for my own mental health benefits. Um, that's about, I'm trying to write some stuff that is about more kind of healing or trying to kind of, trying to make, slight, people trying to make slightly better choices or people not, not feeling crushed. I'm trying to write more about women in very, very kind of brutal societies, but without so much of the kind of bleakness and the misogyny and with women trying to, you know, women being able to survive and not just survive, but try and build things and find some kind of, find a positive way out because I think we probably do need that now. <laughs> it just kind of feels yeah, I need to turn that anger to a more kind of positive talking about how we might try moving forward and try and finding some hope to make things better because God knows we need that as well. So, yeah, but thank you for loving the grim stuff because, yeah, it's kind of... I, I stopped writing battle scenes for a while because I kept thinking, like... Actually, we were, just, we were just talking before this chat went live about how publishing isn't that kind of big, heavy, dark, epic fantasy isn't what publishing wants commercial publishing wants at all at the moment and I for a while I was like oh my god so I must try and write if I'm going to write another really commercial book I mustn't write battles and things and I must try and make it you know kind of like fluffy and I was like I was why why am I doing this I'm kind of I know I know I'm damn good at writing battles why am I not writing battles so I'm yeah I'm just kind of trying to keep but just have it with a slightly more kind of people taking a some it's people trying to t use to fight for something kind of slightly more hopeful and build things in a slightly more hopeful way. But yeah, that's an extremely rambling answer, but yeah. <laughs> uh, I have a question for all three of you really is, uh, you mentioned, you know, wanting to get that, those emotions out. Is writing therapeutic for each of you? I, I don't think it is for me. No? No. I, 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 none of my issues are, yeah, nah, I, I, writing's not a, it's not a therapy thing for me. Uh, it's a way of 
telling stories with a point, uh, which maybe people get, maybe they don't. I, I don't know. I also kind of don't care. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, as Anna, okay, so I, I am of an English background. We just bottle that shit down. We don't need therapy. We're fine. It's locked down tight. I'm okay. I don't need fucking therapy. I will just crush it down there until it's fucking dead. Everything's good. Yeah, I mean, so writing is something that it it makes me feel like I'm a better person because I write because I'm writing, it makes me feel like I'm doing something really positive with my life, which is really stupid, actually, because, I mean, I've raised, I'm raising two children, and I'm actually, I mean, I've done some really cool, I have actually, I've, I work in central government, I have actually done some genuinely really cool things. I've, I brought through a piece of legislation which made it easier for people to get compensation if you've had a particularly disgusting form of lung cancer that's only caused by you, you being exposed to asbestos in the workplace. So basically, I kind of did this thing which meant that people can get hundreds of tens of thousands of pounds really quickly because they're dying of this horrible disease they got while working to support their families and feed their children blah 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 which many people say should of course you know i should feel like you know i can go to my grave knowing i did something genuinely good for people which is what many people can say and i'm like yeah but and at that point i was really really depressed because like yeah i've never written a book have i i've never written i've never written a comic short story about someone who goes around just knifing people i mean god what <laughs> you know <laughs> i just feel such a failure so writing, writing for me, it feels like it's like it makes me feel I feel like I'm a better person than a lot of other people because I've written books and writing keeps me feeling like that. Like yeah, I mean, good. as writers, we are actually better than other people. It's yeah. just that's fact. <laughs> so when I can't write, I feel like when I don't write, I feel like I'm wasting my life. What's the point of my life if I'm not writing? But at the same time, yeah, I mean, basically, the house, the house of sacrifice completely fucked me up writing the ending of that book completely fucked me up for about six months because I just went to some really, really, I just went to some really bad places writing that book. I went really down into some really awful places about myself, I think. And it really, it kind of makes me really, I feel really good after spending a day writing when the writing's going well, I feel so good. But sometimes I suspect I'd probably, I'd possibly be a happier person if somehow a grim dark epic fantasy hadn't found me. <laughs> I, I I think I have to say it is therapeutic for me. Um, I've said this on previous podcasts. I write about racism, sexism, misogyny, homophobia, religious intolerance, all these things. And um, part of that is because I think I felt powerless sometimes to cope with it, powerless to understand it, um, you know, frustrated because with my job being in law enforcement, it's has its dark moments. <laughs> so, um, you know, so when you, you combine that with the world in general, um, you know, uh, what are you going to do about all that? Where's, where's all that? And I talked about the frustration, the, where, where is all that going to manifest? Where's it going to go? And, and where it goes is into a book. Right uh, for me, rather than going out and you know do something stupid. So I think that's that's um, for me. It is therapeutic, um, and I think I do feel better when I when I read this stuff. Although people often ask me, especially ones that actually draw my book, 
how could you write that? Or how could you say that? Or where did this come from? Is this is like this, you seem so happy and positive and, you know, nice and, you know, and, and I'm far from perfect. I think those are part of who I am too, positive, you know, I, I'm blessed, I'm blessed with how my life is, but also there's a lot of brim stuff going on um, and has, that has gone on and that continues to go on. And, and, and I think that's why I write because that's my way to express how I'm feeling about this. And also to Michael made an excellent point that like to write a book with a point. Yeah. My, I, I hope my books have a point to say, Hey, <laughs> you know, maybe we need to look at this stuff more carefully. Like, you know, all right. Yeah, we did have another comment. Uh, I finished The Empires of Dust a few weeks ago, and I'm still recovering. Yes. What an ending to this beautiful, rotten series. Aww. Thank you, Anna, for being such a refreshing voice in fantasy. Hashtag Team Emereth. Oh, um, yeah, it's all hand getting some love, because that, yeah, the, um, the, the civil servant, the guy who's like, just, yeah. He's trying. He's trying to make it. He's trying to make do it, make his best, and yeah, trying to make it better, and trying to obey the law, and yeah, no, it's yeah. Oh, thank, thank you, Katrina, so much. Thank you, thank you. It's really, it's really. I mean, I've just had such a completely fucking awful last two and a half years, and really, I mean, actually, I nearly started crying the last time I did a thing like this because um, people say nice stuff, and it just felt like God. I just, I mean, I just stopped being able to write completely for about for the whole of lockdown basically for various different reasons mostly to do with being locked in the house with two children and yeah it just I feel like I'm just beginning to put myself together and try and get out and actually be who I was I feel like I'm just remembering who I was now so every time I see something like that someone saying something like that I just thank you so much because I'm trying to remember who that person was <laughs> And uh, White Pony did have a question. Uh, is it Backer or Baker? I, I think I've been missing. I think it's, I'm told it's Baker. It clearly okay. should be Backer, but I'm told it's Baker. Okay. Uh, uh, Baker or Erickson, if you've read either of them. I know, Anna, we talked a little bit about Baker when we talked last time. but. Um, oh, Baker. I worship mm -hmm. Baker. I just think he's, um, I just, um, yeah, no, I actually, um, Worldcon in San Jose, uh, me and a couple of people, we spent an hour queuing outside a room so he because he was going to be the he was on the panel and we spent an hour outside the door so we'd be the first people in so we'd be right in the front and we were just like we're standing there for an hour and, oh my god oh my god oh my god we're gonna meet scott oh scott baker oh my god oh my god we're gonna ask scott baker and then as the doors open someone said did you know he's not he's not coming to the convention he cancelled at the last minute but it was too late so we got stuck right at the front in this incredibly boring panel and it was absolutely crushing but no i i've just adore <laughs> baker i think he's just again he's one of those people the ending of the unholy consult you're just like oh my fucking god you know he again it's one of those endings which is like i just i knew this was coming for the whole of those six books i knew this was coming and but you, it has actually happened and i just can't believe you've done this and again he is so important it's like he again to come back to sort of talking about there's no there doesn't seem to be a market in publishing for kind of grimdark kind of really dark fantasy stuff baker is so important because he you know he wrote years those fucking books years ago were like this is what happens if you erect someone like donald trump as president right this is what happens if you people do this and he wrote it 
in these amazingly, amazingly, incredibly well described, incredibly beautiful, massive, amazing, amazing, brilliant battle scenes. And his fight, magic fighting scenes are amazing. And it's like, and everyone was like, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll just ignore this book. No one's going to read this book. And it's like, he wrote that. He told you what you would fucking happen, you fuckers. And no one read it. <laughs> now look. Sorry, anyway. Although Ericsson is a friend of mine and he's Stephen Ericsson's lovely. He's one one person as well. And I love his books as well. Michael, you uh, have you read either of those authors? Yeah, I read them both. Um, um next question. <laughs> uh, I read the first book of, of Malazan. Um, it made me feel incredibly, incredibly inadequate and friggin' stupid. Um, and I thought I was someone who wrote somewhat immersive fantasy and somewhat, you know, complex plots, but another level, <laughs> complete. Erickson is a complete other level. So uh, brilliant, but um, it was Steve, actually. I blame Steve because now I have uh, Baker on order as well, thanks to Steve and... Uh, and uh, uh, Zara from Zara Books with Zara, they both kind of convinced me, like you got to read, you got to read Baker. So um, that's books coming at some point. And uh, but Erickson, brilliant. But uh, I I did feel um, at first, you know, for the first time ever reading a book, that I was a bit out of my element. That that intellectually, I was like, okay, I'm not getting this, or I'm missing something here, or and then I just stopped and I just started. Reading it for pure enjoyment, for the the pros, for everything else, and I started enjoying it. So that's something on a reread that I will go back and um, absorb what I missed. But uh, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant writer. But uh, yeah, it, it uh, very, quite complex, quite complex in terms of in terms of plots. I don't want to say convoluted, but but complex. So, <laughs> so it, uh, but yeah, brilliant, brilliant writer. And uh, another question is, is there an up-and-coming author you recommend? To Michael, you want to kick us off? Oh, sure, sure. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna throw this one at, at uh, so Clayton, uh, Clayton Snyder. Uh, he's written a, a pile of books, River of Thieves, uh, The Obsidian Psalm, which is where I discovered him. Uh, he's kind of mental and dark. Uh, we co-wrote a book together called Norilska Groans. Um, basically, after I read Obsidian Psalm, uh, I reached out and was like, hey, I've got a world. I've got a magic system I built. Kind of half-assed, have a story. Um, you want you want to co-write a novel with me? And he was like, fuck yeah. Um, <laughs> his new one, Blackthorn, is awesome. Uh, he gets better with every book. Uh, and I think he's, I think he's a, he's a bit of a sponge for, for talent. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, next couple of years he is, uh, he's a name that you're hearing a lot. Yeah. River of Thieves is great. It's hilarious and great. River of Thieves is phenomenal. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so good. Uh, what about you, Anna? Is there any up-and-coming authors you recommend? Oh, goodness. So this is where I have to make the confession that I have been doing a lot of rereading and reading a lot of stuff that isn't isn't fiction over the last couple of years. And I can't, bizarrely, I got my massive comfort zone actually became reading back issues of current archaeology, the UK's leading British archaeology magazine. 
so I spent a year, basically I spent the whole, two, for the whole of 2000, basically what I was reading was reports of um, dig sites all across Britain. So, um, which was, yeah, so I now I'm just walking encyclopedia of stuff about British archaeology, but because um, it, I find it kind of safe, like I'm reading, and actually military history, bizarrely, one of the things that I read when I need to feel safe is military history, which sounds completely bizarre, but there's just something about the kind of the clinical objectivity of the prose. And obviously, I mean, even when you're writing about something like the American Civil War, where obviously, you know, you you have to write about military history in a very kind of impartial way, even about, you know, the way the two armies are moving and interacting together and what's going on and the way that they're being led and stuff, even even when there is clearly... And the author, the, you know, the author is clearly talking about the fact there's a moral position. You still, you have military history has to be written in that very kind of clinical way. You can't have kind of, yeah, and then the goodies came in and smashed them and the baddies lost and woo. So um, I find it very comforting reading that kind of stuff that's very detached from the kind of horrible messiness of the last couple of years. But um, I don't know if you call him up and coming more, I guess, hopefully, because he's, he's actually, I believe, written more books than me now. But um, Peter McLean, the... Um, Priest of Bones, I just think is is just wonderful. They're just yeah, those are wonderful, awesome. wonderful books. Yeah. Uh, they're just again, they're kind of really necessary. What he's doing, what 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 you begin to realize is actually going on versus what the setup that it begins being presented is going on, and what the some of the characters think is going on is so incredibly necessary and important as well right now. But they're just they're beautifully written. They've got this real. They're set in a kind of they're not medieval. They've they've got a kind of slightly. They've definitely got a kind of folky, folk songy vibe. There's definitely something. The main character I compared a bit to Thomas Cromwell. They've got that sort of folk vibe, and they've got stuff going on about the early, they're early modern, not medieval. And they've so there's stuff about the formation of modern, complicated society, modern, complicated European society, in there with really cool and there's sort of stuff. There's kind of folk magic. It's not high epic fantasy stuff it's kind of low stuff there's low magic and it's just there and they're just they're just beautifully beautifully written and they're just so you get so sucked in they're written in the first person and you get so sucked into the tragedy of what's going on there and what what i well, if he doesn't end it the way i'm assuming he ends it i should be quite crushed quite be furious with him but just you know the tragedy of what's going on thomas party's kind of the tragedy of what's happening to him so, yeah i'd hugely recommend those uh, Pierre, do you want to read this enough? Uh, which author would you grant immortality so this person can write more books? Oh, that's interesting. Can't wait to hear this one. <laughs> well, I think, I think, Michael, could we come to an arrangement here? <laughs> I, th I think, I think we can. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I personally would grant immortality to Anna, without a doubt. And I would, yes, I would absolutely grant immortality to Michael without a doubt. And yeah, we could just. We can be dark for the rest of time. But, <laughs> I, I, but I, and I have to ask, and you're going to have to forgive um, my perspective because I'm outside the um, traditional published lens. I'm a self published author. Um, I have plenty of friends that are traditionally published. However, um, you know, when you hear different things, you talk about different things. And and so specifically to Anna's comment about the fact that um, presumably that, you know, traditionally published 
uh, trad published houses are not necessarily looking for the grim, dark stuff now. They seem to be on, you know, the next the next kick is quote unquote cozy more cozy fantasy but from my perspective as as someone who's pretty immersed in the i am somewhat immersed in 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 books as a whole but i think pretty immersed in the self-publishing side people can't get enough man they're eating that up you know like like readers of self-published books are eating up grimdark so um but my real question is what do you two think about this whole Grimdark versus not Grimdark thing. It's 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 almost like a. Um, I don't know. I I feel very um, you know very incompetent right now in terms of of accurately describing Grimdark in terms of the impact it's having in the self-published landscape. But to what do you attribute its popularity? And I guess the second part of the question is Anna, why have they? Do you think they moved on? Is it just a case of, as with all traditional publishing, they're just on to the next thing that's selling? because that's what they're all about, because what's commercially viable is what gets book contracts, or is it something more than that? Is it a backlash to world events? Okay, first we want to immerse ourselves in all these dark things, and now we don't want to anymore, we can't take it. Like, what is it about? about? Yeah, I mean, I think, so I've taught, I've got this whole kind of theory about the history of where kind of some grimdark begins with this kind of, you know, there's a, there is that kind of point in, there's that, you know, that kind of Francis Fukuyama stuff at the end of history. So there is that kind of point at the be- the end of the 20th, the beginning of the 21st century, where it kind of feels like, okay, you know, the world, Western, Western world is not perfect, but there's that vague feeling things might get better. <laughs> there's that vague feeling, you know, there's the collapse of communism, there's kind of, you know, the Berlin Wall comes down. So we are starting to get civil rights. You know, we get moved towards people become that that basic awareness that being blatantly racist and misogynistic and homophobic in public isn't acceptable anymore and yet i know there's a huge amount of racism and sexism homophobia and as a british person even beginning to talk about well things get better in america in racial politics i mean that sounds totally naive i'm sure but you get the feeling that things are vaguely getting better that's the idea that basic civil, at least basic civil rights being granted to people is some kind of, well, we're not going to go back from that. And the world, you know, there is that kind of sense that maybe we're on some kind of vague upward trajectory. Things will be better for our children than they are for us. And I think at that point, people, there comes a point where people then start feeling that they can write, they start feeling safe and able to start interrogating things and saying well you know what if we start tearing stuff down what if we start doing that kind kind of postmodernist? well what if aragorn actually was a really evil bastard like you know what if he was a really horrible person and let's write about that and let's kind of deconstruct that because we're quite safe you know we can start we can start saying what if our leaders are actually personally really not very nice people because we kind of feel safe and that becomes a thing and you get, you know, people like John Crombie become massive. Game of Thrones becomes massive because it kind of feels like, well, it's a game. You know, people aren't going to fuck it up that badly, are they? And then suddenly like, well, fuck. <laughs> they just, you know, there's that point, And now suddenly in the last couple of years, suddenly it's been like, oh, God. And actually that idea of watching a load of 
I kind of feel if, if Game of Thrones was on series two right now, would any of us want to watch? Hey, it's a load again. It's a load of really powerful white dudes fucking everything up, and they're going to fuck it up totally for all you know. There's going to be you know, thousands and thousands of unseen peasants, and their just lives just going to be totally, completely fucking fucked up because people are having an argument about whether or not someone should have married someone's sister or not twenty years ago. Like, gee, I don't think people. I don't think Game of Thrones now that kind of gratuitous sex and violence and just gratuitous these people are just fucking horrible would be successful in the same way because and then again finally you know we get covid and everyone is i think a lot of people do i saw it myself i was rereading the books of my childhood i was rereading stuff that i felt safe reading because it did feel like do i want to read something completely that's going to tear me apart and leave me feeling absolutely mentally broken no because i can get that standing outside my parents doorway waving at them through the window <laughs> and there is so there is that kind of sense that apparently a lot of people wrote massively dystopian futuristic fiction about how awful the near future is going to be during the pandemic and no one wants and publishers getting just throwing that on the fire because like, no one wants to read that no one wants to read that who's going to want to read that so i think there is a sense that people wanting to read safe stuff but at the same time it's like but we need to say that you know we need to keep I kind of feel that actually this I was saying about, you know, Baker and what he does with the kind of notion of the chosen one. And similarly, that kind of you now I I feel it's kind of genuinely important, the kind of stuff I was talking about, about wars and about about why Maris doing what he's doing and why Orhan's doing what he's doing and that actually and why Thalia's doing what she's doing and you know, the fact that these people are going along and they're not good people and they're making terrible choices. And they're living in a terrible world, but also they want to survive and they're trying to survive. And, you know, at one point in the House of Sacrifice, Tobias talks really openly about, you know, the the squad he's rebuilt around him. These are the people he cares about. And he will, you know, he will kill anyone who to keep these people alive and he will do terrible, terrible things to keep the people around him alive which on one level is the most humanly important thing we can say on another level is obviously you know the justification for the most appalling things you could have been you know a soldier in second world war germany saying well you know they told me to sh- you know they told me to shoot the jews and i shot the jews because otherwise you know my parents either wouldn't they would have sat me and then my children would have starved i mean you know it's that it's that absolute moral complexity and that pointing out all the time well you say you're right, you say you're doing something because it's really good, you know, you're gonna say you're gonna bring us to the promised land. I mean, just, you know, what what's happened in the Supreme Court yesterday, you know, that these are people who appear to genuinely believe on some level that they're saving American women by totally fucking their lives up. And that it's so bloody important for us to keep writing these books and saying that and saying there aren't maybe there aren't happy endings. And maybe the guy with the good hair on the white horse is riding in saying, hey, I'll save you. Maybe he is Aragorn. Maybe he's Trump. You know, it's really fucking hard to tell. And sometimes we get it wrong. And it's so important to say that. But at the same time, I can see why people don't want to hear that right now. (laughs) Sorry, that's my kind of exhausted rant over. But yeah, so I can see why publishing isn't touching Grimdark. But I can also see why a lot of people want to read it i can see why you want to force it down I, that feeling of wanting to force it down people's mouths and make them read it rather than kind of 
and here's the guy with the good hair on the white horse, and he's going to save us all, and it's all going to be good, and he'll 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 kill off all he'll kill all the baddies, and we'll all live happy ever after. And we're not going to question who the baddies are, and that maybe it's a bit more complicated than that. Yeah, I mean that really is sort of um, probably a, a better definition of grim dark than ever actually gets tossed <laughs> around. It's complicated fantasy where it's it's not easy. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not usually a sort of right answer. Anytime you know the answer, you're means you you haven't seen all sides of it, right? Um, from from the more businessy side of you know publishing, uh, totally get why trads sort of um chasing other stuff right now that's the biz right uh but with the world market the tiniest niche is huge there are enough crazy people who want to read fucked up dark fantasy stories and that sort of like scratch away at some idea you know um that you you can have a career you just write weird books and there's going to be enough people out there, if, you know, if you can find them or if they can find you, um, that you can do that. And you, you don't need a trad publisher. Um, like, I'm not saying I would turn one down at all, but like, you, you don't actually need that anymore. It's a, yeah, I think you know. Publishing houses are kind of, again, there's that kind of, I mean, I, so I commute into, I have a commute, so I have that classic commute from the suburbs into the city centre a couple of times a week, and no one reads anymore, you know, because everyone's on their phones, everyone's watching stuff on their phones. No one's reading. I don't know, sometimes people are like, yeah, no, no, they're reading on their phones, they're reading on their phones. I don't think people are. You see, most people, they sit down and they've got 40 minutes on the commute, so they're going to watch an episode, put their phone down sideways and watch an episode on their phone. And I'm not sure publishing's really caught up with that. It's still that sense of, well, if a book is successful, for a book to be successful, a book, you know, a book that's a real big bestseller, everyone's going to be reading. So, I mean, I do remember, right, I remember that kind of, they were think, you know, those massive books like The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And there was a point just before that kind of being able to stream television on your phones came on. And you could be on a train and everyone was reading The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. It was ridiculous. And then people, but and I think publishing still thinks like that. Still thinks like you know a really big best-selling book is a book that literally half the country has read. And actually, no one's read. People aren't reading like that anymore. There's people who, and fant- but fantasy is one of those genres that people do still read a lot in. It's not. I don't think many fantasy books are going to have you know half the people on your commute are going to be reading them reading a fantasy novel in the way that they might have been if it had been you know a massive hit been published 30 years ago and just had that thing but to have that thing now it's a much smaller group of people because most people aren't reading yeah. which sounds terrible but then people who are reading are buying those beautiful like i mean the, the anthology that me and adrian uh, me and michael are both in for uh, major and colin's grimdark magazine the special editions of that the leather bound ones with the they've got these amazing signature sheets that are all colorful and gold and and they are just beautiful and people have paid a huge amount of money for those because people for genres like ours, where people value them, people really value those books as objects and as things to have and as things to love. And yeah, they do want to read more and more and more of it. But I don't, yeah, that publishing us think, still thinks that they can publish something that half the, half the English speaking world will read. And I'm not sure that's true anymore. And never will be again, possibly. It's in the place music was maybe when people suddenly buying a CD when, you know, everyone wasn't rushing out to buy that week's single. And it's 
but publishing hasn't really dealt with that yet. Great points. Uh, White Pony had a question, Michael. Uh, I've asked you this a couple of times, so maybe. Uh, how is Manifest Solutions Part 4 coming along? Uh, actually, technically, it'll be Part 3. Uh, so it's Beyond Redemption, The Mirror's Truth, uh, Storm, and Storm, Swarm, Swarm and Steel, uh, the all-consuming, uh, is a standalone, you know, not actually part of that series. So the the last book, which will be most likely called A War to End All, uh, is half written, um, and <laughs> I will have a first draft by the end of this year. Now that I just finished this other thing I was working on, um, so early 2023, uh, it'll be up. Uh, I've already because Felix is booked so far in advance, uh, I've already hired him <laughs> to do the cover, um, and he's already sort of going, like, Oh, what scene are we gonna do? I'm like, Oh. So, um, yeah, like the cover artist is hired, the books uh, half written early 2023. Yeah. And we have been getting uh, bits and pieces on Michael's Patreon. So go check that out for some in, some inside, inside information. Throw money at me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I like to keep that super subtle. Yeah. Pretty, pretty good job. Yeah. Yeah. Slick. Uh, writer of things had a question when you write do you have to stop yourself from jumping onto shiny new things and leaving whatever you're working on at the at the moment to wither and die yeah i mean for sure i mean i'm already i am currently working on two books because i started one and then had a shiny idea and started another one really dumb uh yeah i there are more shiny ideas than i have time to write No, I, so I get totally kind of in the sense of that book and I don't want to break it. I don't want to lose it. So if actually, if I have suddenly realized I've got to stop and write something else, I've got a short, got a short story commission coming up or something, I get quite annoyed because it's like, I want to feel, I need to feel, and I feel all on edgy. I'd feel all kind of jumpy on edge if I was trying to write multiple things at once because I feel like I've got to get one thing finished. And I'm, I'm kind of living in it while I'm writing it and it would feel kind of weird and wrong. So I, in fact, I do really bizarre things. Like I have CDs that I listen. To. I have to. I end up listening to the same CD and repeat while I'm writing a whole book, and that must drive my neighbours completely insane because it's. Um, I, so I'm listening to like two alternative folk albums on repeat, like for a year basically writing a book, and um, and in fact, that does they get really stupid things. Like I will start thinking, oh, I'm writing quite well while I'm re reading this particular book as bedtime reading. So. I will read, you know, I will read the ser the four ser books in this particular series and then I'll start reading them again and I'll read them again and again and again because like, okay, my brain is obviously working. This this CD and this book that I'm reading are obviously helping my brain to be in the right zone for writing this book and I'm feeling good. So I'll just like stay in that zone by reading the same two books and listening to the same CD for a year. Um, yeah, so I can't, I don't like the idea of having to break that and trying to do something else and trying to do things and do things at once they, they get all muddly and yeah i get i just i couldn't i couldn't do that yeah. but then i write um kind of non i write totally non-fiction stuff for my day job i write government papers and things but yes yeah, so it's like i'm writing one thing in the day and then I'm writing another thing it's different so yeah i guess there's that but yeah no, I, I couldn't what about you uh, pl what do you i know you have your whole series planned but yeah, I'm crazy that way. I, 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 I'm like, and in that respect that I cannot, I, I write one book a year, 
my job is crazy as it is. I can I have enough left in me to throw all of my efforts into one book a year. And then when that's done, move on to the next one. So I um, mean, because I do have all 20 books that I plan to write, uh, you know, um, nominally 20 books in the universe that I've created, like one seven book series, two prequel trilogies, and then a, a subsequent uh, seven book series. Uh, you know, at 53, I'm just hoping to live long enough to write them all. And then, <laughs> after, so uh, for me, it's just, you know, get her done, get them done. And then, and after that, we'll see, you know, when I'm 70 you know, years old and, and, and all 20 are done, then I can look back, okay, I can see, okay, well, maybe now I can pick up that really cool idea that I had lingering that from 10 years ago. Um, although I do have a couple of side things, um, side projects planned with other writers, um, you know, hopefully in the future, can't really talk about now, but hopefully it comes to fruition. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty well, like one book a year, plan it out and, and that's it. I, I can't focus like that. I mean, like right now I'm writing two books and background in my head, world building a new science fiction thing um, for when I finish one of these books. Um, and then I think I've got like one other uh, world, like very skeletal world building thing that I'm working on for a totally different project. You know, I need, when I'm writing, I'm focused. Uh, but if I'm sitting on the sofa having a cup of coffee, I'm not thinking about the book I'm writing that day. Uh, I don't want it. Uh, I'm, you know, sort of a world building some other shiny idea. So it, I, it's I try and it's searching for that balance between chasing the new shiny uh, because it's interesting um, and then actually getting shit done, which is difficult. And uh, Jim L had a comment. Anna, if you see, if you ever see a guy with a Warhammer book on the train during your commute, it's probably me. <laughs> I just never see anyone with books anymore. Although someone a couple of years ago, someone sent me a photograph that they'd been sitting on the tube and that someone had actually been reading the Course Broken Knives on the carriage opposite them, and they took me. They sneakily, of course, because I can use camera phones. Of course, they can just. They took a photograph without this person knowing. But it was, I mean, it was like, oh my God, someone reading my book on the tube. Also, like, my God, someone reading a book on the tube. Like, never mind my book. Someone actually sitting on the train reading is quite amazing. But yeah, no, that was really, really, really kind of special. Yeah, there's a comment about that saying people not reading on their commute. Yeah, no, I, I write on my commute now, unfortunately. I mean, I used to see the reading, the commute used to be that wonderful time of reading. And now it's my part of my writing time. But but yeah, no, I, I get kind of depressed. And people watching things on really small screens as well. It's like, well, what are you going to see? I mean, like, I don't know, maybe. But, you know, someone spent so much time. A really good program has got all that beautiful cinematography and, you know, the sets and the costumes. And I mean, whether you're talking about, you know, even something like Britishton, which is trash, but, you know, there's gorgeous costumes and the sets and things. And you're seeing on this wee little screen that's like jumping around because it's set on a train and you know, it just feels a bit like... I'm sorry, I love Bridgerton. Apologies, I, I love it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I mean, I'm just trying to think of watching something like, you know, just watching it. Like, I don't know, it just doesn't feel right, people watching television on those tiny screens, because it's like, you don't get the whole, you don't get the, my dad did film studies, so he's, I've got, you know, I grew up with all this stuff about, you know, the importance of actually, you know, the shot and the lighting and the set and everything. It's like, that wasn't made to be seen on that, you know, it's supposed to be on a big screen, not like we. <laughs> uh, 
so Mike the Mike the tour had a comment. Uh, how much of your writing process is, is instinctual, for lack of a better word, and how much is it technical, as in specific methods learned from classes or craft books, etc.? Who wants this one? <laughs> PL, you start us. Yeah, kick us off. Um, I fly in basically my pants. I, I mean, I, I have a degree um, in English medieval literature of all things with a minor history from school and i don't really know if i use it much <laughs> to be honest with you i mean it's it's part of me but when i write i'm not necessarily thinking about that and i mean i'm obviously influenced by by writers that i've read um especially classical ones but um i never had formal uh creative writing training i never you know, and I didn't, I didn't take that in school. Um, so um, I think for me, um, when it comes to writing, a lot of it, again, is just, you know, uh, me putting words down a page and it all being all messed up and then having good editors to look and go, that's all messed up. And then fixing it and fixing it and fixing it until hopefully it becomes something that, you know, is, is worthwhile reading. But, um, you know, I don't, I, I'm one of those people, I have a, my own unique system. I'm sure a lot of us do, or maybe it's not consistent with the book, but I pretty well, I'm a three-job person. I kind of write the thing, and then I leave it, and then I kind of, even though it's written, then I do my first draft. I revise it, I scrap this, I do this, and then I'll leave it, then I'll do a second draft, right? And then I'll do a third and final draft, and that's it. Then after that, I, you know, between beta readers or whatever, then that's what it is, that third draft. It's it's the input of beta readers, it's my revisions. And then I said to an editor, and then I just let them rip it apart three or four times, and then that's the book. So uh, that's how I that's how I pretty well write. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, similarly. So I've never read a book on any of those kind of how to write guides. I've never studied creative writing. I mean, I, I'm i aware I had an incredibly privileged background. My father is a poet, so I grew up with people in the house who were poets. I grew up surrounded by books and literature. And then, yeah, I studied, sort of did English A-level. And then I, I studied history at university, but, you know, I then studied, you know, I've read and studied texts and read throughout my whole life. And, um, yeah, just read a huge amount of books. And I think that's that's how you learn so it's not um i don't obviously i mean I, I don't know i do i've never read a book on how to write but i think the major way you can learn the way you learn to write is just to read a whole lot of books and to read a whole lot of stuff that isn't to read lots of stuff in your genre but to read lots of stuff outside that as well to read a whole lots of different voices and styles and books from different periods and books from different places I mean, read translations of books from all around the world. Just, you know, read, just read a lot. And that is the only, and and then write a lot as well and just keep writing and looking at your own. And I think for me, the big thing is I think about what I'm writing a lot. So I think about what I've written. So, um, which again means I don't, I never get that much written in a day because a lot of the time I'm thinking about, I'm going back over and over the paragraph I've written until it's right, or I'm going the next day, I'll go back to over it and sort of 
almost kind of redo it. So I'm redrafting a lot as I go, and it's taking a lot as I go along. But it's that thinking about what you've written and kind of just thinking about it all the time. And yeah, that's that's for me is how you that's the best that's how you get better at it is thinking about your own writing and and thinking about other people's writing i sometimes hear people say now they're writing they read books in a different way and i, I think i must have always read that probably because i'm always surrounded by people who were writing so they always read books like that as well but there is always that kind of awareness of like whoa what are they so you know someone's done something really good here that i'm really enjoying what is it they've done what what was it that all that kind of moment where you realise you have just been totally lost in a book. And like, how, how did they do that? How did that happen that that did that to me? Or um, so actually the classic one, I would sort of um, to be incredibly, incredibly rude to Brandon Sanderson. I remember reading the Mistborn book, which I was given by someone because it was Amazon told them, you know, this is this incredibly successful fantasy novel that, you know, everyone's buying. So clearly, and they were like, oh, I like fantasy. So clearly she would like this. And I remember reading it thinking like, God, this is the worst book, possibly the worst written book I've ever read, but I cannot put it down. And and it was like three in the morning and it was like, I've got to get up to go to work in three hours time, but I cannot put this book down, even though every sentence is wanting to make me, me want my, rip my eyeballs out because it's so badly written, but I cannot, I cannot stop reading this book and I've got to know. And then I like went and bought the other two books in the trilogy the next day because it was like I cannot rest even though I know these are even though I'm hating reading this I also think you know and it's like that is genius like what was he doing that what is it that that book did and it and at the time I was reading thinking like what is this book doing how is it doing this and I I know how he's doing it he's doing it because it's constantly kind of that constant what is going on what's going to be the next revelation and that constant the chapter ends on a big exciting thing and it's a short chapter but it's that thinking about that all the time you know what was he doing or a book like a book like like Erickson and Baker which are very intellectual very complicated very dense well yeah you I remember reading Gardens of the Moon and you're like I have no idea what's going on here I have no idea what's going on here what just I don't know what happened I've just read a whole page and and I'm dyslexic as well and that very dense prose it's like what the fuck and you lose you lose one person's name, you know, like, I have no idea what's going on. I have no idea who this person, what's going on anymore. But it's Anna thinking about that as well. Like, you know, what, how is this book getting to me? What is going on here? And that, you know, you could do a kind of compare and contrast what Sanderson's doing, what someone like Ericsson's doing and learn from both of them. And that, that's, that's the way you learn to write. I think that really kind of important that that's how you learn to write is to think about that all the time when you're reading stuff. You're not getting off the hook, Michael. You're not getting off uh, the hook. Uh, <laughs> we, can, we can still see you. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, for me, it's uh, my process is is purely instinctual. I, I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't, I don't know anything about writing. Um, I am the guy who is constantly having to Google how the fuck do I use a semicolon or what is a comma and why. And, and like, ah, God, fuck, I have to, like, I'm like, should I be capitalizing this word? Ah, shit. And I'm looking, researching that. So I'm constantly learning and relearning because I'm forgetful. Um, so to me, it's, it's all about how the words sound and am I telling the story I want? I know, I know when the stuff sounds good in my head. And so that's, that's what you get kind of. And then I learn how to sort of, uh, you know, punctuate and, I have kind of managed to pick up, uh, and again, this is sort of instinctually, 
the, the rules of grammar, uh, but it's, I don't know them. Um, but I know when it's wrong because I'm like, no, that sounds wrong, but that's it. Uh, I had one editor say, oh, you, something along the lines of like, you can't have a dangling participle. I'm like, the fuck is that? <laughs> like, I got the fucking foggiest clue what he's talking about. I'm like, okay. What? what? <laughs> so yeah, purely, purely instinctual. Thing about grammar and punctuation is they're rules for clarity, mostly. So yeah. I mean, punctuation punctuation is basically all punctuation originally was was when you breathe. So it's how you break up the sentence to stop for breath. So obviously, if I stop in the middle of a sentence like this, it doesn't make any sense. Whereas if I stop at the middle of a sentence, and then I go on to the next sentence, so that's all. That's all punctuation is. It's when you stop, and it's how long you stop. So a comma is a little stop. And a full stop is a big stop. And a semicolon is a like in the middle stop. And that's basically <laughs> what punctuation is. <laughs> yeah, see, I, I went to the Williams Shatner School of Punctuation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you never have to Google punctuation again, Michael. Don't you? Yeah, I'm good. I got it. Maggie had a question. Uh, what was your favorite childhood fantasy book, and what is it now? I think I read Lord of the Rings when I was maybe eight years old. As my, my dad, my mom, my parents tricked me. Um, they started reading it to me uh, as a like a bedtime story. I was like, "Fuck yeah!" And then they were like, "Hey, we're kind of too busy um, doing other stuff to read to you because I two little sisters that." apparently also required care. Um, and so they kind of, we had it in all three books in a single paperback. Uh, and so they dumped this tome on me and went, you know, if you want to know the rest of the story, you're going to have to read it yourself. And so uh, that, that, I mean, that's the, that's the book that got me into fantasy. Right. Um, I don't have a current favorite book. Hmm. Too self-centered right now. Too focused on on my own shit to be thinking about other people's books. Ah, <laughs> uh, honesty. Yeah. What about you, Anna? What's your? Oh yeah. So my favorite fantasy book when I was a child, and actually, it's probably still one of my favorites. Are either so the Weird Stone of Bristingarman by Alan Garner, which is just amazing. It's um he's kind of writing about he he lived it he's writing about an area he knows very well so it's it's very kind of rooted in his knowledge of that place and a scent real scent so the place is incredibly real and it has dwarves and it has elves and then um the sequel the moon of gomorrah is very kind of that's sort of wild magic it's very they're, they're quite dark they don't sugarcoat it there's a kind of um what the children experience and what it and their their experience you know they are experiencing wild magic and it is genuinely frightening them and changing them in a way that most children's books. So think about the children in the Narnia books. So I love the Narnia books, but the children are totally unchanged by that. It's very much like, hey, yeah, there's this wonderful world, this wonderful other world, and it kind of doesn't change them. Whereas the children in the Alan Garner's books are kind of altered and damaged by what they've experienced and in fact he wrote many years later a book called Boneland which is about 
Colin, the boy in the weird stone of Bristing Garmin and the weird, the moon of Gomra as an adult who is totally, totally broken by the fact he's been briefly in a world of magic and a world of kind of dark powers and magicians, sort of, you know, wizards who are the one thing holding back the dark and dwarves and elves. And he's absolutely broken by that. And his sister, in fact, um, Susan, has gone. She's gone to be with part of the wild magic because she can't bear to live in the real world anymore. Which, again, children's books don't usually talk about. There's that kind of, hey, the child's like, hey, I've got this cool secret that my parents don't know, that elves are real and dwarves are real and magicians are real. And then I'm just going to grow up. And it's like Susan in the Narnia books where she's just saying, she's going to grow up and ignore all of that. And just care, just lead a normal life. Like, how are you going to lead a normal life? You know, you've, you know, you, you've seen, you've basically, you've, seen, you've met Merlin and seen him having some kind of vast cosmic battle with the Morrigan. That's going to totally change you and destroy you. And and they are kind of rooted in a kind of raw, dark folk horror of the kind of British landscape, which had a huge impact on me. Which are just kind of they're wonderful strange strange books i mean i love the narnia books um, but the one i always liked best actually i realized so in the lot i remember reading the last battle and i was always on the side of the <laughs> the other lot i was always on the side of the bad guys i always kind of felt there was just there's that wonderful scene where this assyrian god appears in narnia and i was just like that is so cool that's that's the those are the guys i'm going to be part of you know I, like not the god lot, the kind of, you know, the, the kind of, the foreigns. Those, those, they're the ones I want to go off and be part of. And yeah, and that, and, but Ghana, and Ghana kind of right gets that, that kind of sense of kind of, those the ones, you know, that what, what that does to you and as children. What about you, PL? Do you have a, a favorite? Yeah, I mean, some of them mentioned Lord of the Rings, uh, uh, Chronicles of Narnia, also Chronicles of Pridean. That was a big, big one for me, Lloyd Alexander. That was one of my my faves. And I look back now and it's funny because um, everything in those books, the things I was processing in my head all had to do with religion um, because um, my mother was very, very devoutly, still is very devoutly religious. Love you, mom. We don't know if she's watching, but um, I have uh, probably disappointed her in that, you know, I consider myself more spiritual now rather than than formally religious because of my own complicated um, issues with with organized religion, but um, we'll go there. But anyways, um, I think as I got older, I knew I wanted to write about something that had to do with uh, examining uh, religion in general. Um, you know why humankind is so obsessed with it. You know uh, about organized religion itself and it's its positives and its its negatives and things like that. So that certainly bled into my my writing. Um, uh, favorite book now? Um, wow, I I it's tough. I have so many writers. I just wow the stuff that that I've read this year. This has been quite the reading year. Uh, Beyond Redemption among them. I'm still recovering from Beyond Redemption. Like I'm still I'm still re I'm still recovering from. <laughs> From Beyond Redemption, but um, and and Anna's book is yeah, I thought it would have been here by now. I ordered on Amazon, but I guess Amazon is taking their sweet time. But um, Anna's first book, Court of Broken Knives, but uh, I haven't read it yet, but it is on the way. Um, I think the book that 
I have to say uh, to, to write Hell's Chats by by Jenny Wirtz. You know, no one writes like Jenny Wirtz. No one uses language like that. It, it, the way she incorporates, it's just, yeah. And then, of course, because of the themes, because, you know, uh, racism and racial intolerance and injustice is a big part of that book. It just And to write that when she did, just the courage, the way she approached it was just, yeah, it was phenomenal. So I'd have to say right house chasm but uh, lots of great reading year and again my all my top books of the year beyond redemption has to be read them I, I still don't i i like i said i still think of that book <laughs> wow mind blowing so kudos to you Mike. thank you yeah i still think every time i eat bloody veg every time i eat chicken and vegetable soup i think of that damn book <laughs> <laughs> I cannot eat a bowl of meat of brick meat and vegetable broth now. <laughs> I'm not thinking of you, Michael. <laughs> See what you've done. Look what you've done to us, Michael. Yeah. Traumatized us. <laughs> I didn't think it was that dark. I don't I don't know. Maybe. I, I I I had a I I said to Steve that um because for me Beyond Redemption was the darkest book I'd read, period. Except, but then I started thinking back about um, Sarah Torrance's book, um, first Seraphine's book, uh, Seraphine's Lament. And I said, wait a minute, no, Seraphine's Lament, that's that's his, that's, his, that's his darkest book, Beyond Redemption. And I read both, I read Seraphine's Lament first, then read your book. Steve read Beyond Redemption first, then read Sarah's book. And I was like, Steve, I was like, Steve, the only thing close to Beyond Redemption is Seraphine's Lament. And Steve's like, he starts reading, he's like, I don't know. But then, he finishes like, oh, okay, maybe you have a point, yeah. right? But but and both brilliant books, right? But but uh, beyond redemption, I've never seen anything. You know, I I I know everybody says, well, nothing's new. Everything's an imitation, a copy of someone else, or inspired by something else. But I've ne I've never read a book. Uh, again, I'd put that in my review that that the world building is essentially based around mental mental illness and 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 the way you did it was just it's just phenomenal um i've purposely held off and read the second book because i still need to go back and reread the first book because i want to be in that zone there's some things i want to okay but wow I, yeah it was just incredible so yeah no i completely second that and i mean it's like it's against swarm and swale it's just like how the fuck does anyone do this i mean just like yeah no there's yeah it's it is totally new i mean because i was telling really old fact i'm turning the old i'm turning the oldest stories in the world very simply i just like to think i'm doing it in a poetic way but yeah michael you're doing stuff it's like how the hell did this come? how did where did this come from i mean like jesus christ where did this stuff come from it is like nothing else i've ever read it's just yeah michael stuff it's just... <laughs> he is one of a kind for sure <laughs> great great stuff the second book is really good too i can't wait for the for the third one i'm so excited uh maggie had a question your favorite magical mist i'm sorry your favorite mystical creature or being i love druids and there are not enough of not enough druids in fantasy books I, hand, I, mean, I love dragons i can't can't go wrong with a dragon damn it that's, that's all i want i mean you well, you can't see him there um uh, yeah, I'm a sucker for the classics. 
yeah, yeah, no, I mean, dragons, I mean, yeah, there are loads of dragons in my books, and there's a big dragon up behind me, yeah, I mean, dragons are just, and that sense that they are kind of not just creatures, that sense that you're right, you are trying to write about something that's like a god or a force of nature, you're not just writing about an animal or a human, you're writing about something that's kind of more, and so different as well, you're not writing about a god in human, you know, a kind of anthropomorphized god you're writing about something that's totally different so actually one of the huge inspirations behind my dragons is watching footage of um the metal working indus- metal industry so watching steel casting and things and bronze casting I, there's a really cool museum in sheffield which i go to quite a lot which is the big british steel city si- british steel city and you can see old footage of these like massive crucibles of liquid steel and they just upend the this like massive room-sized bucket of liquid steel and this liquid steel is just pouring down and of course the, the heat and things are exploding things are just spontaneously catching fire just being near this stuff and it's so hot and the light coming off it and that's that, that that's dragons but actually I'm, I've got this absolute obsession with horses with kind of like weird horses so I do actually quite like unicorns I get really embarrassed to say I like unicorns because I was like oh unicorns and pegasi and things but because I've got this real thing about horses I had this amazing book children's book when I was really really young called um the bread horse which has got all this stuff about horses in there's this massive obsession in Indo-European mythology about horses so the Greeks for example have got this real fear of horses so there's all this stuff about man-eating horses and centaurs and things being these wild creatures and through most of it you have kind of European mythology there's this really actually this real fear of horses and so that and of course you see them in a field and their heads look like skulls those you see a horse face straight on and its face is really frightening actually and so yeah I've got this real obsession with things like with any kind of horses so like fire breathing horses or I so yeah I mean I've got man-eating horses a referenced a couple of times in Empires of Dust because I've just got this thing about horses and that being actually been quite frightening. So unicorns and pegasi and things actually I do really like, but in a more complicated way than kind of that sort of they again they're so kind of fluffified by people with this like, oh unicorns, like beautiful ladies and unicorns. But actually they're they're wild animals. They can be quite frightening. Kind of you go back at some of the medieval stuff about the unicorns and they're often really quite aggressive and fighting and things. And Pegasus, again, I mean Pegasus ends up Bellerophon tries to ride Pegasus up to Olympus. But Pegasus sort of bucks and Bellerophon is thrown off his back and sort of falls to his death. You know, it's they're a lot wilder and more dangerous animals like creatures like that than um a lot of modern stories make them out to be where they're always like on the side of light and good and elvish so they must be you know just nice and they're not nice they're frightening and wild so yeah but yeah i don't i don't that just has always been a thing about horse me and horses and any kind of magical horses it's really a massive thing i've got actually and uh, is is everyone here taking part in my baker group read i'm starting a uh group read for the series uh, this month so hope you're gonna join us jim uh jonathan said as a sagittarius i've always been partial towards the centaur symbolizes half man half horse so <laughs> <you> get... <laughs> oh wow oh, no. oh. oh jonathan you got me on that oh one. jonathan <laughs> 
Uh, for, for those of you listening to the podcast after they can't see the comment, it says, uh, I will, as a Sagittarius, I've been partial towards the centaur. <laughs> Symbolizes being half man and half horse. I will let you decide which half is horse. Hey, yo. <laughs> uh, that's confidence, I guess. That's uh, <laughs> if you want to yeah. call that. <laughs> Yeah, dragons are awesome. Um, uh, Miles slash Kristen Cameron, one of my favorite series, uh, is Trader Sun Cycle. His uh, dragon's bad. Ash, love Ash, and um, you know, A Song of Ice and Fire, obviously. And uh, it's funny you mentioned druids. You know, I I have druids in my book. They don't really feature prominently until the second and actually no, sorry, more like the third book that I'm right now, the fourth book. But uh, you know there are there are Jews, and I find Jews fascinating as as holy people. Like, you know, uh, yeah, it's it's Jews are kind of cool. So it's funny that that question came up. But yeah, but dragons for sure. Dragons are dragons are the bomb. Centers are great. Your unicorns are great too. Um, uh, Chronicles of Narnia had what I loved about Chronicles of Narnia. They had those creatures and and gave them very you know. Attribute human attributes, and they could talk, and they were very, you know, very integral to the story. So, yeah, but uh, yeah, dragons as well. Yeah, dragons are are popular. And during uh, the collaboration process, what did you, each of you learn about each other while you were working on the on the project together that you didn't know before? Uh. We're, we're both pretty bad at planning, I suspect. <laughs> um, uh, but I did learn that Anna writes the best demonic POV characters. Oh, that was awesome. That She wrote one of the characters it is, is a demon. And it's absolutely mental. It was, it's amazing. <laughs> like, I, I, that's my favorite part of the whole, uh, the whole, you know, project was, was reading uh, her her demon character and then just thinking like oh fuck like can you imagine having to follow that <laughs> you're like you get an Anna Smith spark chapter and it's like okay Mike write oh. something you fucking hack <laughs> but that's the point you've got to have that balance if you'd read the whole if I'd written a whole book in that so yes yeah, so I've got these chapters that are in this kind of stream of consciousness from this demon and they were a lot of fun to write but again they did slightly fuck me up I think because um I mean, well, yeah, when I get into it, it was that again, that's like me writing me on some level. And but yeah, but then you, you can't have that, you can't write a whole novel in that style because, um, it would just be actually, I mean, because one of my favorite novels in the whole world is James Elroy's White, White Jazz. And I said this in front of my agent once, and he went white and said, No, because White Jazz is famously absolute, I mean, he's unreadable. And his editor obviously at some points makes him stop and say, like, you have to have these little recaps where he just has to literally tell you what's happened in about the last five chapters because you cannot, haven't got a fucking clue what's happened in the book because it is just stream of consciousness. It is just a man who's completely out of his mind on drugs going around killing dogs. And it's just, but yeah, and I was basically, I kind of came quite close to that with some of these chapters for this thing where, and it couldn't have been like that because it couldn't have been the whole book could have been like that because it would have been unreadable. So it has to then move into the way you're writing because it has to work, it works better with the juxtapositions. But yeah, but um, no, there were some really bizarre, unfortunately, slightly bizarre, embarrassing business meetings where me and Michael and Adrian Collins 
he's in Australia, so the timings of the whole thing were a nightmare as well. But and me and Michael would start going off on one, and Adrian would be like, "Guys, guys, guys!" Like you know, so people have got to pay for this. And there's cons, and he's like, "No, you can't do that. You can't do that." I'm like, "Why not?" Like because people are going to have to pay for this. <laughs> and yeah, and he was just being. I mean, you could see him at one point. There, I'm really sorry, Adrian, because you could see him being like, "Look, did you guys?" You know, there was a time when there was a bit of a hiatus. We we just both stopped writing for a while, and he's like, "You seem like." Guys, did you bother rereading anything before you carried on writing? And I'm like, nah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's like, do you know? Do you have any mind. idea what is going to happen for the end of this story? Like, nah. <laughs> have you got a fucking clue what day it is and what the weather is like when you pick up to start rewriting right in the next chapter? Like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that was. I hadn't actually realized quite how chaotic. I was like, look, look, guy, look, Adrian, I mean, you commissioned both of us to do this because you think we're amazing writers. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, like, everyone always says genius is close to madness. And Adrian's like, oh, God, just, like, just, like, just stop. <laughs> just... <laughs> 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 but, yeah, so that, that it was fun. But, yeah, no, I, I think what, when we've broken Sarah, and actually, we we did. I think we broke Adrian. He did actually send us a message saying, "Like, guys, you've gone too far." <laughs> it's like, hey, the editor of Grimdark magazine sending a message saying, "Like, guys, you just wow, you've just gone too far." <laughs> wow. Yeah, that was that was, but yeah, no, it was. I don't know. People sort of keep saying, like, "Oh, they'd love to meet the two of us." You know, they'd love to be at a con and then meet the two of us together. And it's like, I don't know what. What do you think we're going to do? You think we're going to start going to come back to rampage or something? We'll just sit there being really shy and like, oh, yeah, <laughs> colossally introverted. Like, I can, yeah. I can be sociable and stuff like this because you're not fucking here. <laughs> Whenever I want, I'm just going to fuck off and leave. <laughs> you know, even this is, is going to be exhausting. By the time I like, we all shut down. I'm going to like kill a bottle of wine and be like in public, like at a con. Oh fuck no, no. I I did NYCC one that huge the huge con in uh, New York in 2015 promoting uh, Beyond Redemption. I did one day. I at the first day at the con did a panel on heavy metal and fantasy, and it was so exhausting. Uh, I went back. Uh, with a couple of buddies to our hotel room and we just we sat on the floor of this little uh, coffin hotel uh somewhere in new york and just killed a bottle of uh jameson just <laughs> i was like done the next day i'm like nope not even going back then it was we were doing crawling restaurants and hitting bars and you know i, I couldn't do it too many too many humans I need to read that book. You guys are killing me. And then, uh, Sarah's pretty tough. I don't know if you if you broke Sarah, then it must be. <laughs> yeah, Sarah. I, think she's just gonna be, I don't. I think she's just going to be around. She's going to be like, guys, you have like the same. Some person, someone has died five times, and the weather. Like, I mean, like, come on, you know, like it's like day, and then it's night, and then it's day, and then it's night, and then it's day, and then it's night, and then it's been raining, and then it hasn't rained for six months, and then it's pouring with rain, and then it hasn't rained for six months. And like, what the fuck are you two doing? Can you get anything bloody right? (laughs) 
when when Sarah sends uh, feedback, who does she send it to? I don't know how that's going to work. At some point, I guess we're going to have to. We'll get edits back, and we will have to do things. Well, yeah. Uh. <laughs> I assume it goes to Adrian, and then they come to us. But yeah, and then we'll have to actually just yeah sort it out. But yeah, no, I see. I don't mind structure. People always. Uh, I don't mind structural ideas. I don't mind when people say kind of like, oh, you can't, you know, can you change this character's trajectory a bit? And sometimes I can get a bit like, no, I really intended that person to like have that trajectory. That was really important that they keep on like that. But I don't actually mind if someone tells me like even fairly big structural edits. But I take line edits really personally. I get really, if someone tells me like, I think this shouldn't be a comma, I think it should be a semicolon, I get really, really personal, like, no, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm right. And then occasionally I'm like, okay, the, the copy editor is actually right, it should have been a semicolon rather than a comma, and I get really upset. I see, I see kind of like line edits is basically as an exam. I see them as like someone testing me on my on my prose, and I get really, really, really arsey about that. So well, that's starts nice to not know what you're doing. Cause I, I get, I get like a, like, like prose level edits back and I'm kind of like, Oh, okay. Comma. Sure. I guess. I'm fucking, okay. <laughs> I don't like, I never get angry about those. I'm almost, I mean, I've had days where I'm like, oh, accept all. Yeah. Fuck off. <laughs> well, I was just like, I, I don't know. Hopefully she knows better than I do. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, so now with, and I think, you know, and please forgive me for saying this, but, you know, both of your reputations as grimdark authors are pretty well established. So <laughs> let's just put that out there that, you know, um, the world, I think, looks at you two as grimdark authors. I know, uh, and a part of your handle is you know, queen of that is Michael's about. fault. That is incompletely. Oh, yeah, okay, okay, I gotta hear the story. Like, well, <laughs> it's entirely his fault because he sent me a message on Twitter saying, Do you know that no one's taken that Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the truth comes out now. Okay, that's a, that's a juicy one. Okay, <laughs> so, so you're both again established and trenched as you know. Grimdark. We all know about uh, about uh, Mark Lawrence's uh, blog post where you know fan poll where you know who's the grim darkest grim darkest author. It's Beyond Redemption, the book in Michael R. Fletcher. So you're both synonymous with Grimdark. Your names are synonymous with Grimdark. Do you feel at all that that could limit you if you suddenly start deciding to go in a different turn and write a bunch of, I'm not saying you're going to do it, cozy fantasy or uh, sci-fi or, you know, something something else that's definitely not grimdark. And some of you have, I know, Michael, you've written books, you know, kind of different genres and, you know, but do you think that, that you know, almost like being typecast as an actor, that that's, you know, going to affect, you know, your readership and was like, what? This book, you wrote a book and it's not grimdark? Like, what's going on? Like, do you think that, how do you feel about that? I don't give genre any thought, really. Like, I am not, I don't try and be a grimdark author. I never have. Like, Beyond Redemption, I'd, I'd never heard of grimdark when that came out. Um, so, I writing in genre, I, I don't really care. I'm going to write whatever stories I want to write. Uh, the book, 
uh, I just finished the first draft of yesterday, The Storm Beneath the World. Uh, there is not a single swear word in it, and there is no sex. What? That's sacrilege. What are you <laughs> no, but that's the story I needed to tell. And it, it didn't fit. Like in that, in that story, there, there's no cursing and there's no sex because they didn't fit the story. And I don't give a shit about genre. Now, is the story dark? Hmm. A little bit, yeah. You know, it ain't cozy. <laughs> but you don't need sex and swearing to actually uh, tell a dark story. Oh, so I should just say first, Tony, you've just sent Tony's just someone called Tony's supposed to put a message up saying he's just ordered my book. So thank you so much, Tony. Um I'm on I'm on Twitter as Queen at Queen of Blim Dark, which is all Mike's fault. Um find me and send me a DM and I'll send you some postcards as a thank you. So just DM in your address through Twitter and I will send you some postcards as thank you. But they are kind of spoilery, so don't read the back of the postcards. <laughs> but anyway, um, Well but yeah, the Grim Dark handle. So yeah, I mean I do so the stuff, the new stuff I'm writing now, which I'm hoping I can make some announcements about in the next couple of months, I've got some stuff coming out. I've got a short story in that this new world I'm writing, which is coming out in uh, Unbound 2. I think it's Unbound 2. It's either Unbound 2 or Unfettered 2. No, it's Unbound 2. Unbound 2 from Grimark Press in the autumn. And that is not Grimdark, Grimdark. That's... So then that and that moves into a kind of novel series I'm writing, which I've actually described to people as being like Alan Garner, but for grown-ups. So it's taking that kind of children folk horror, that kind of fantasy, that sort of, you know, the children in a world they don't quite understand, the kind of folk more folk horror tradition of British folk fantasy writing for children, and write, writing it from an adult perspective. So it's about kind of people it's basically people on a journey just sort of go on a journey through a landscape running away from danger in the way that a lot of British children's fantasy like um can often is like the like Alan got a lot of Alan Garner's books and that there's this kind of inexplicable there's sort of danger coming to them and they've got to escape it it's got a lot of folk horror elements I don't think it is it's not it's not grimdark epic fantasy at all. And I do worry that some people are going to read it and go like, oh, but wait, this is all... I mean, there's lots of stuff. The protagonist is a woman and a mother. There's lots of stuff about she's she's sort of taking her children on... She's she's bringing, taking her children out of danger. So there's lots of stuff about her having to care for them. And there's this lovely scene I've written, where I, which I'm so... I've really enjoyed writing, where she, she make, bakes them bread. They're somewhere safe for a little while, so she bakes them bread and cooks them bread. And that kind of... And I do worry some, part of my guess sort of worries a bit that people are like, whoa, whoa, you know, I was promised, like, I thought this was going to be more massive battles. And, you know, and instead we've got this woman going on about she's baked her children bread and talking to, you know, talking to her 12-year-old daughter and that kind of about the kind of stuff that mums and 12-year-old daughters talk about. And that I, and it is more kind of personal and homely, but then it's still got that, dark edge to it and also I don't I don't want to do the same thing for always it's that kind of not wanting to do you know different styles of book writing wanting to write different voices I will come back to writing more massive big epic fantasy battles and big epic fantasy books and I'm with lots of multiple voices and kind of 
clash of empire stuff but i wanted to write something more personal and more about kind of me and about there's lots of stuff about landscape and the woman in the landscape and i want and it but i kind of i i guess i don't know there's a kind of worry that people i get all these reviews that like wow i thought this was going to be two big massive empires slacking off and it's not it's a woman baking bread (laughs) kind of but you kind of need that it would be kind of sad to have an author that was only writing one thing i think you need those different slightly different styles of prose and slightly different approaches to storytelling and to what you're trying to say so i'd I'd hope it wasn't it would kind of i don't know i'd I'd like i'd like the idea of people i'd like to think most people are broad-minded enough to read different things rather than just the same thing and to kind of yeah find different things of value in different books that have got different kind of but the grimdark thing again i mean as we were saying earlier a lot of grim sort of when people talk about grimdark fantasy you often think well so it's like so what you actually mean you know like most historical novels are <laughs> if you took read most historical novels and put the fantasy filter on them they'd all apparently be the most grimdark thing ever in the history of the universe because <laughs> historical novels tend to involve people turning out to be not very nice and powerful people turning out to be correct corrupt and the imbalances of clark whether it's class or race or gender being pretty massive because that's like what history was basically and it for some reason fantasy seems to be this genre alone where if something bad ever happens to anyone it's like ooh, that's a bit grim dark i was actually you know <laughs> I, I mean, I'm rereading the Lord of the children at the moment well, you're like no it's just like, yeah it's like kind of you know it's like <laughs> It's like that's like human life, you know. <laughs> shit things happen to people sometimes. You get really good people and really shit stuff happens to them. You get really horrible people and they do well. And like and usually things go end up not quite going the way people thought they were gonna do, and usually worse than the way people thought they were gonna do. That's like that's 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 history that's the whole of human bloody history, isn't it? But um but actually I mean I'm just reading my son most good fantasy has a sadness to it and a darkness to it it's kind of i'm just rereading my i'm reading my son the lord of the rings which i haven't read for a long time and realizing just how sad it is and that you know that grief that kind of yes it has a happy ending but that grief that the world is never going to be as it was and everything has changed and so much is lost and that most good fantasy has that sadly most the old a lot of the the older stuff has that real sense of sadness to it. And again, all the children's stuff that I grew up with reading, which was old, it was old books when I was reading it, but there's sadness in it, there's loss in it. The um, Susan Cooper's Dark is Riding series, which has got real sadness in it, real dark, real kind of sense of loss to it. And this kind of sense of, at the end, they all have to choose. Do they want to spend their, do the children want to spend the rest of their lives knowing that the world is darker and more frightening? But also much more magical and romantic and more amazing and that they're never going to get back there or do they want to forget and they choose to forget and everything is all wiped from their minds and that's such a sad ending and but either either in either choice they make is going to be sad and there is always going to be that element i don't think i could ever write a really fluffy just kind of like yay and then they all live happily ever after fantasy because that's not how fantasy should be. There should always be that darkness and that sadness. I mean, things like elves are scary, actually. If you go back and read mythology, if you go back and if you read, you know, the 
kind of Norse and Celtic myths that this stuff's coming from. If you read any culture, in fact, if you read any culture's mythology, it's dark and scary. We've completely sanitised it. But you go back and read traditional folk tales and traditional pe people's mythologies from all over the world, and they are dark and scary and sad. And the things that live out there, the the elves or what you know from a right talking from a European perspective, you know the kind of elves and things. But whatever culture it is that has that kind of you know other beings out there. They're usually quite frightening, even if they're helpful, even if they're kind of benevolent. They're not they're not elves in the way that a lot of modern fantasy presents. You know, there's really kind of this they're threatening because they're the world outside, they're the world beyond your village, there's your little village. And there's the world outside it, and the world outside it is fucking scary, particularly in a, any pre-modern society where we haven't got electricity and guns and cars and you know you're living cut off and it's frightening and the world is frightening so fantasy or good fantasy should always be slightly dark but a fantasy should always always have that element of fear and darkness and the uncanny in it because that's where it's coming from we tell each other break it up as like there's children's fantasy and adults fantasy and you and i what we write is fantasy for adults yes and you know like that cozy sort of like fluffy fantasy like yeah. totally nothing wrong with it read a ton of it as a kid and then I grew up and, you know, the hero's journey starts to look kind of fucking shallow. Yeah. Um, and so I want something with a little more honesty. Yeah. And to me, that's I, like, I, I don't I think in terms of grim dark, I, it's dark fantasy. It's it's adult fantasy. It's, it's fantasy written for adults. Do your, if I can ask, do your family members read your work and what do they think about it? Uh, me yeah um they do um i i get some nervous looks um uh my dad's a writer although he he wrote more like ad copy and corporate stuff um and so i get i get like critical feedback from him on <laughs> on stuff and you know some books he's like eh. and sometimes he's like yeah fuck, this is really good uh, but he's also like, where the fuck does this shit come from? Like, what the hell is wrong with you, boy? Um, I, I think I think they're just, while occasionally concerned, happy that I'm doing what I wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. So I'm assuming, I mean, my so yeah, my dad talks about my prose to me and things, and he, him saying he liked my prose was a huge thing in my life. Him saying when he. So when he, he and a very, very good friend of mine, my, so my best friend, were the only two people who read The Cause Broken Eyes before it went to, they're the only people who ever read anything I've written before it goes to agents or editors and things. And my dad reading some, reading very on some early chapters. So The Cause Broken Eyes was the first thing I'd ever written as an adult. And my dad reading some of the early chapters of the first piece of fiction prose I'd ever produced and liking it was a really massive thing for me that really was that huge thing and I he's one of the very few people I talk to about to develop about my ideas and I'll show stuff that isn't finished yet um yeah I mean and yeah my mum's read the books which well, she, she's read the published book she's yeah she's not read anything I haven't had published but she and she actually yeah, really likes them well, she's never forgiven me for the ending of the house of sacrifice she was really she had never she just was really really upset about the ending <laughs> but she doesn't 
I haven't talked to her about the books in the same way. She's just kind of, yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating um, how, like I know for me, my wife is my business partner and she she reads my books and she's the one that usually before I actually say, okay, this is like a problem, she's like, okay, fix this, but you need to fix this still, you need to fix that, you need to fix that. And that doesn't work. And I don't know why I don't like this, but you need to change it. And usually she's right. But um, it's funny how um, my mom was a, a writer. She never published, but uh, wrote romance. And uh, she um, she reads my books, and she says they got the same thing as as Michael. Although she she seems to really enjoy it, she's like, you know, did I do something to you that made you like? Did I, you know, I, you know, I was it like was I <laughs> like I'm like it's nothing you did. This is just you know me. This is what's inside me. It's not because you're the best mother in the world. You know, if I if I write something that's disturbing or traumatic it's not because i feel traumatized by my upbringing or anything right it's it's you know uh so uh this is so that's it's funny to ask that question because thinking about what my mom thinks she's like you know is everything okay <laughs> no everything's everything's fine <laughs> so so i think we can we could go on for a long time but I, we want to respect everyone's time and of course michael we're cutting into your drinking time so why don't I'm you just, yeah, well, i'm twitching now man. <laughs> i gave the shakes <laughs> but uh, if, uh i want to thank all of you anna and, and michael of course uh, pl it's always great to uh to come in and chat but thank you so much for making time for us and thank anna you. if you can tell us about where uh fans can find you and interact with you yeah, so I'm on Twitter as at Queen of Grimdark, which is entirely Michael Fletcher's fault. So it's, it's, there's actually on so um where is it? it's um yeah, here we are. All hail the Queen of Grimdark fan. All hail it's not coming up for me. All hail the Queen of Grimdark Fantasy, Michael R. Fletcher, on the back of the Court of Broken Knives, and that's where it comes from. So yeah. <laughs> So yeah, the um yeah, Twitter as at Queen of Grimdark and then Facebook and Instagram, I'm Anna Smith Spark. I'm the only Anna Smith Spark in the world, so I should definitely be and I have a website www.quarterbrokenknives.com, which is just nice picture. There's a really amazing video I've got with fan music and fan art and some maps and stuff and pictures. It doesn't have anything particularly interesting. Like I don't blog or anything, but it's got some nice stuff and some recipes and stuff that people did around the books. Mm. And yeah, and I don't post that much on social media um, because I'm trying to not be on social media so much. I've really discovered during the pandemic that actually not being on social media was really good for me. I should get back on it actually, because it, it probably isn't as bad as it was during the pandemic. And I, post stuff i post pictures of my cats sometimes but yeah <laughs> uh yeah uh, twitter i think i'm at fletcher mr maybe uh michael r fletcher on facebook probably something like michael r fletcher on instagram mostly i post my daughter's artwork um website which is amazing yeah, she's amazing. so freaking good. It's yeah, she's really good. Wow. Like, I yeah. have no idea where that came from. Uh, certainly not me. Um, she made fun of me the other day. I was, I did a, a, a like a pencil sketch for the, for my illustrator who was doing illustrations for the next book, just trying to sort of describe something. And my daughter found it and she's like, 
what is this? Like, what are you trying? What are you trying to draw? <laughs> uh, website michaelrfletcher.com and I have a Patreon the address I have no idea what it is but you'll wander over you know throw me your spare your spare change and I will turn it into illustrations and stuff and I'm, I'm, I'm always around on social media mostly because I'm terrified of people not buying my books and so I just you know shout at them <laughs> Largely random shit. <laughs> Entertaining random shit, though. Hopefully. I'd, I'd try. Sometimes, you know, I, I have good moment. And PR is the best place to uh, to find you. Um, I have to shout out um, the wonderful Before You Go blog led by the awesome Beth Tabler, who also does a lot of stuff for Good Art Magazine, uh, where Steve and I are both members of her blogging team. Uh, so you'll see reviews there. Um, you know, you see my review of, you can read my review of Beyond Redemption there, for example. Um, you know, uh, so we, you'll see Goodreads. Uh, Twitter is my preferred social media platform for sure. I like, as well, because I am on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, but really Twitter, it's at PL Stuart Writes. That's, you know, I'm on there pretty frequently. Um, you know, uh, I, my website's www.plstuart.com. That's where you can find out more stuff about the books and what's coming out and that sort of thing. So, but Twitter's DMs are open. You want to get a hold of me? Talk about writing. I love engaging with people. You know, it's a medium, no problem. Chat. So. Awesome. Well, thanks everyone so much for coming by. It's such a pleasure. It's always great to talk to all of you. So, yeah. Thanks I, for having us. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was really fun. It's lovely. Yeah. Thanks everyone. Hope everyone has a great rest of your weekend. Ciao.